You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Arc 2 is proudly sponsored by HeroForge, a free online character design application that lets you make and order your very own custom TTRPG minis. Their character creation tools are rich and deep, with facial customization, animal companions, action poses, spell effects, hundreds of clothing options, and nigh-infinite color choices. Get a color-printed mini, unpainted premium plastic, bronze minis, color standees, or even your very own digital STL files for printing at home or use in virtual tabletops. To see their tools in action, go to HeroForge Minis on Twitter and search Artemis. They made a mini of Nova's very own Hand of Fate, and she looks good. Check out HeroForge today at HeroForge.com. Content warnings for this episode may include death of loved ones and family, grief, trauma, food, eating, complex and complicated relationships, and references to alcohol, malnourishment, fitness, body image, and existentialism. Arc 2, Episode 3. Her Ribs Spell Out. From Carved Inside an Empty Urn, by Connie Chong. Two months. One week. Three days. Eleven hours. And forty-seven minutes after the Chosen One dies, the three surviving members of Strike Team Nova dream the same dream. White hair, pink eyes, an easy smile, a flowing mane, a longsword, a ship, rustling waves, the smell of smoke, darkness, roaring, a lance of oil as black as night, a princess, a sacrifice, an end. You are roused from your slumber by your oracle, the colorful chirping, the revelation of your faded summons. The dream vanishes from your mind, and only the shapeless form of imperfect memory lingers behind. And now, we find each of you nestled in your den, in the places you call home at Trans. The Syndicate's magic provides something, anything you might need. Some strike teams live together in dormitories, sharing facilities and even bedrooms. Others live separately, in their own houses, cabins, lofts, manors, towers, dungeons. Still others have abodes that change according to their whims. A two-bedroom apartment one day, a cave behind a waterfall the next. Every agent's home is as special and unique as they are, but one thing is true across the Syndicate. No matter where you live or what your home looks like, it is part of the ecosystem 
of trance. The perceptual magic of this place ensures that no one is ever too far away, that everyone can always be reached. Dense, complicated neighborhoods layer between and on top of each other, sustained by a thriving habitat of activities, events, amenities, shared spaces, friends, families, communities. We pull in on the three of you now, in your abodes, waking. Zynan Esh. What does your home at Trans look like, and how do you rise at your oracle's behest? The lights are dim in a small, understated space. There's a desk, a workbench, both made of firm wood iron fittings. All of it is lit by bars of slightly pinkish light. There is a bed that seems incongruent with the rest of it, the furniture otherwise being very functional, very straightforward. The bed, the small bench and cushion next to it are soft, comfortable. You can't see the large stone-walled restroom in the next room, but it is where he starts his day every day, except first he has to crawl out of the bed large enough for two. (sighs) And when he does, for the first time in two months, there's a cherry blossom in his hand right next to the pillow. As Zynan Ash crawls out of bed, he leaves it there and walks into the bathroom, ready to do something that he hasn't been looking forward to. A memory, a promise, and a piece of home. Every morning, since as long as he's been at the Syndicate, Zynan has painted two bright green stripes on his face. Every mission, he has been provided with a means to do it. But now... That cherry blossom still haunting his eyes as he looks down and it's sitting. It's got to be on his bed, but he must have brought it into the bathroom with him because it's sitting on the counter. Next to his pot that he uses to store the green glowing paste. And he takes the customary fingerful and makes the first line. But just above it, an echo of home. That fresh pain fresh grief. He lays a second line just under his eyes and does the same on the opposite side. <sighs> I, uh... He looks down at the cherry blossom, feeling her echo. Zynan, is the paste warm or cold against your skin? I think that the restroom is actually quite warm. He doesn't like it when it's really cold. It makes it really challenging for to enjoy a nice shower. So I think that it has like a pleasant temperature. It's almost room temperature, like he's holding something non-physical. So like tears then, as you streak them down the wrinkles that crease around your nose and your mouth, your eyes falling upon that gentle, almost out of place cherry blossom, that vestige, that echo. And as you turn to face the part of your abode beyond this bathroom, what other vestiges of a once easier time, perhaps, haunt you 
in your dwelling. He tells himself that the bed was because Naeem wanted it. Because Naeem wanted a place that was more comfortable than a very small, almost restrictive for the size of both of them bed. But Naeem's taste isn't hardwood and iron fittings and the bed matches the table and the desk. The bench is something that he's never seen anything like until he started going on missions. It's at the foot of the bed. It's like a large pillow. It's comfortable and soft and it's an echo of an attempt at being a person other than this bad Xerox of Zine and Esh from Kiseki. Mm. Yes, the furnishings in your dwelling that are softer than you might expect, than perhaps a part of you thinks you deserve. They sit in this poorly illuminated space as though taunting you. You feel the familiar weight of the paste upon your skin. You see the glimmer of that pink cherry blossom in the corner of your eye. And then the oracle whisks into existence once more, chirping with a reminder of the meeting you have to get to. And as you exit your home, Zynan, and the door closes, we pull onto black. And when light floods into the space once more, we find Sayer. What does your home at Trans look like, and how do you rise at your oracle's behest? Sing in Sayer's room is dissected in two. There, on one side, a room filled with color and bedsheets messy and thrown about stacks of pillows and cushions plushies a elegant vanity sits at the corner of that side of the room it is beautifully carved out of wood painted white and on the table set a smattering of different makeup utensils and brushes all sprawled about all untouched On the other side of the room, it's darker. It's plain and bare bones. On the walls sits a pennant for the Wild Hunt and Artemis's teams and their call for discipline and efficiency. The bed is occupied by a heavyset man who lies his back against the plain sheets of his bed, blues and whites. Yes, two pillows. One small one that he rests on his chest, a round of soft pillow. A gift from one with bright pink eyes and only love in her voice. And as Sayer awakes, he's usually awake at dawn. Heck, before it. Before the sunrise kisses his dark brown skin. Not today. Today he can't bear it. The past two months, he can't bear it. His eyes light up from the dappled rays from outside, and all he murmurs from his mouth is, The sun is coming up. (sighs) Why? And after taking a few moments, he sits up, holds his face in his hands as he tries to stir sleep away. And he makes his bed, this simple, practical bed of wooden carvings all over the wall that are wooden frames and patternings. It's a mishmash of 
many different things, but it's his. They remind him of Artemis, and he stands up and walks towards two heavy wooden doors. He opens it up to reveal a open space, an open courtyard, where a wooden swing set sits, bathed by the sun's rays. There's a little pond of sorts, a shallow pool with lotus flowers and lilies alighting it. On the outside, he picks up a clay incense holder. It's small in his large hands, and he lights agarbati, incense. And he walks over to this really beautiful wooden altar. It is carved with floral and foresty furnishings and details. Sitting on the altar are two hand-carved little statuettes of deer, young deer. And as he lights this incense and places it lovingly on the altar, the seer forgets for a moment the routine, the muscle memory taking him on a ride as he is used to everything. And as he sits there and allows himself to smile for a moment, he says, Good morning, chosen one. Listen, destiny doesn't wait for sleepyheads. And he turns around and she's not there. The silence is louder than anything Singh has ever returned. The open wooden doors leading into the darkness of your once shared bedroom. The vanity with its mirror reflecting light pouring in through darkened curtains. Her bed, her walls, her shelves adorned, full, loved. Your bed, your walls, your shelves, empty, unsure of itself. What artifact from Singh's side of your once shared home are your eyes drawn toward? Her makeup set on her vanity. It's there, still sprawled open like she was just here, just sat right there with her makeup kits and brushes and eyeliners. And his eyes drift onto the kajal pen that sits there. And he shuffles on over. It's not as crude as his. His is housed in a crude brass holding. And the brush itself is honestly just a metal pin that he drags across his eyes. Not Sings, though. Sings is a, a beautiful pencil with a brush tip. And Seo walks on over. He adjusts the mundu, the cloth that sat around his waist, and tightens as he sits at the desk. And he looks at himself in the mirror, and all he sees is Sings reflected right back. His face, her face, their face. And he picks up her cudgel removes the cap from the pen and looks up at the mirror. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And puts her kajal onto the lower lid of his eyes as he paints on the face and smile he will wear for today. As the pigment glides across your dark brown skin on the final flourish of your hand over the edge of your own eye, the crest of your own cheekbone, we flash to a different home, a different abode. Lumira, what does your dwelling at Trans look like, and how do you rise? Lumira is nothing but extra when given the ability, so 
really what happens is while it seems like it's far off and separate from every place else, it's actually just the right amount of distance away from where she needs to be. And if this was a scene, the camera would pan up to a steep cliff that has a tree sprouting from the ground and from that ground in the base built around the tree into the side of the cliff sits this dark, sleek, modern home that looks from the outside almost a bit like just as subtle as it would be breathtaking once you lid your eyes upon it and inside it looks like a mix between a dark apothecary and a dark academia library it's very cozy lots of plants and nature and natural light but books everywhere of all multiverses of all languages of just about everything and if we pan through this labyrinth of sleek modern rooms and striking angles but those angles are padded with nature we pan into what would be Lumira's bedroom if it actually operated as a bedroom. Instead, it is what is the coziest book nook you could possibly think of. There's a bed. It's comfortable, but it looks barely slept in and covered in books. Every open feature of these of tables and angles in her room are covered in notes and books and Lumira sits smack in the middle of this mattress that lays on the floor and it's covered in books and comfortable pillows that are propping her up lots of sunlight because of course she's not asleep she hasn't been asleep for who knows how long at this point, but she's up and reading and the nature that surrounds her bedroom is lots of eucalyptus leaves and ivy branches, but there's tons of purple orchids or what looks like they were purple orchids at once. Some of them are starting to wilt and wither, but planted just alongside of them, there are these bright burstings of pink cherry blossoms that litter all throughout their petals falling to the ground ever so often and just laying there. The petals also, some of them are brand new from wilting and others are dried and wilted, crunching underneath her bare feet. Lumeris just dressed, not in her trans uniform, not in pajamas. She just sits in a sports bra and just as bare as possible. But you, if you're looking at her, 
Her stomach, her arms, they're more lean, they're more toned. You can tell that she has been training in her spare time, but she is nose deep in a book, her chronology book. Once again, reading the last passage that it was, it's almost... She doesn't even have to look at the page. She's read it so much at this point. She practically can quote the entire page verbatim and where information is redacted, she repeats redacted out loud. That redacted pinging to her as something that needs to be further looked into. She is tired, she's wilted, but for some reason, she's still full steam ahead. Just like the cherry blossoms that are wilted, that are crunched, that are dry and so close to death scattered all around you, and yet you still persist. You're still here, poring over every volume, every page that could be helpful that you can find that you've been able to get your hands on. What kinds of books, aside from the chronology tome in your hands, are sprawled closest to you in this controlled mayhem? Outside of her chronology book, it is every multiverse, planar access atlas that she can get her hands on. It's frustrating to her that she finally knows, remembers this big piece, but she can't find anything anywhere. And she knows it exists. She saw it and it felt real. It was real. She knows it was. She could feel it. It was real. The truth of it is written in gold on your fingertips. You continue to study the well-memorized pages of the Chronergy Tome. Your eyes, though they should feel heavy, they should feel sleepless. They dart from word to word, passage to passage, with the agile grace of an eagle. And then that chirruping noise whisks into existence by your head again, and the oracle peppers you once more, reminds you of fate's summons. You should really get going, Umira. You're right. I would not want to be late. Thank you for keeping me, if not on task. And Lumira will crawl over to the side of her bed on all fours, pulling out a little pouch that has a little some ball bearings and just drops them directly in the middle. Yeah, they plop into the oracle's spherical form as though pebbles entering the surface of an undisturbed pond. And there's a strange mechanical grinding noise inside. Thank you. All right, let's get going. Bye. And the oracle vanishes. Lumira will crawl from the middle of her bed and stretch. It is a long stretch. You can hear her joints popping from being sat in one position for hours. And she walks into 
her bathroom to start her day splashing water on her face. Her bathroom is emerald green and gold and is covered once again in beautiful just leaves and ivy leaves and eucalyptus. The eucalyptus hangs over her shower head. So when she turns on that steam, it works as a jolt of adrenaline. Her eyes widen and she goes on, you know, getting through, getting ready for her day. You freshen yourself up. You try to wash away the crumbs of sleep at the corners of your eyes. You get dressed, do your hair, your skincare, whatever else you need to feel like something close to a person, something close to a being that is ready to talk to fate. Well, you'll cross that bridge when you get there. So Lumira, what emotion are you comporting on your face as you approach the front doors of your home? Lumera is attempting to bring back that semblance of the mask that she carried prior to saying, prior to this, the controlled, calm, completely in the know and ready for what needs to be done. Business as usual. Hmm. Business as usual. It is with business as usual etched onto the neutral contours of your face that you open the door. It is with business as usual that you notice the person hunched over at the doorstep swapping out yesterday's tray of untouched food with a fresh new one. And it is with business as usual as this person lifts their head and locks eyes with you. And you look at your first girlfriend, Nafisa Wen. She is a mixed black and Chinese person with long, straightened black hair and vitiligo dappling across fair face. A pair of wood-rimmed glasses sit in front of dark, dewy eyes. Fair ears are long and pointed, and Faye wears robes the color of a summer's day. Greens, golds, whites. You don't usually see Femme stooped over. Faye usually comports themselves with a lot more elegance and grace. She blinks. Ah, Lumira. And she stands with both trays in her hands. In her right, the old, starting to wilt and decay food from yesterday. And in the left, a fresh bowl of congee. So it's been you this entire time. (sighs) Yes. It has been. I don't need to tell you for you to know that I've been worried about you. But I also know you need your space. But I also know you tend not to feed yourself when you're absorbed in... stuff. I appreciate your concern, Nafisa. Genuinely. And behind her eyes, Lumira's nodding. Her composure is typical Lumira, but there's a hint behind her eyes that she's a little disappointed that it wasn't a member of her team. It wasn't Sayer. It wasn't Sinan. It was Nafisa. She clocks it instantly. 
even though you have a perfectly composed face that very few other people would be able to read any other kind of emotion trickling across it, you see in the sharp, intelligent black eyes behind her wood-rimmed glasses, recognition. I'm not the only one that's caring about you right now. There are... There's a lot of concern for you at the Syndicate. For all of you. But Lumira, I just... I just want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Anything. Once again, Nafisa, your concern is warming. And I appreciate it, but you of all people should know that I work through what I need to work through and then move forward. Of course. Of course. Uh, hey, listen, Mia and I, we've been thinking about planning some sort of get-together in like a week and a half. Maybe you should come through. It's not going to be weird to Nefesa. Your ex and your accord. Oh, of course not. Miat understands. You know, we, we all know you and I were much better as friends. And there's nothing cold or awkward about the way she says it. It's just the truth. You both know it. You and Nafisa are just better as friends. And she says it warmly, right? Showing a, a touch of a warm chuckle at the sides of Fair's mouth. Well, I am in the middle of working on something right now. Um, but I'll let you know. Great. I'll be waiting for a ping on my oracle for you. Uh, where are you headed? Maybe I'll walk you. I, um, I have a, an errand to run really quick, uh, before I have a meeting. So I should probably get going. Um. Okay. Trust in her will, Nafisa. Trust in her will, Lumira. And do... Do eat something, even if it's not this congee. Something. A bun, a piece of a waffle. I'll be right on that. All right, I'm holding you to it. Be well, Mufisa. And Lumira will sharply turn and keep walking. As you walk out of frame into the mists ensconcing this cliffside home, we see Nafisa vanishing deeper and deeper into the fog as you leave her holding both trays of food. That look of open care for you slowly dropping into a deep, unshielded concern as soon as you turn your back. And now as we pan deeper into the fog, the mists thicken. And when they part, we see the transplanar reification and nourishment syndicate. And the syndicate is a buzz with a most delectable rumor that the late Chosen One's strike team has been summoned into the Prime Oracle Chamber for a meeting with fate herself. This is unheard of. Only the Twilight Guard, the Revelry, and the Wild Hunt have ever had the honor of meeting fate in private, and only once every couple hundred years if they're lucky. In the case of the Twilight Guard, once every few decades, but even then, meetings are few and far between and always hotly discussed in whispers and hearsay. That this 42nd ranked strike team, well, 40th ranked strike team now, from behind your palm whispered like a secret, one point for a successful mission, another for pity 
could receive a summons from fate herself is incomprehensible. We pan across the syndicate now, holding on moments of muttered gossip. In a bustling canteen, we see a seven-foot-tall, broad-shouldered person with long, pointed ears flattened in the direction of a loudly chattering table. Freckles dance across their cosmic-colored skin in bright constellations. Their reptile green eyes contrast against dark auburn hair that's shaved on the sides with a shining white stripe raking out from their hairline. Gilded top surgery scars that resemble vines of ivy are visible through the gaps in their chest armor. A massive glaive of black steel is mounted on their back. This agent's face is impossible to read. It's a perfect study of pure neutrality, if not for the fact that they've been sipping at an empty mug of coffee for the last two minutes while listening very intently to their neighbors' conversations. We push past them to find the agent at the center of a rumor circle, being relentlessly pestered on all sides for that most valuable of currencies, knowledge. This tall, gray-skinned person has three crow-like heads that bloom from their neck and always speak in unison. Their dark robes are clasped fully over their body, obscuring humanoid hands and long, thin, bird-like legs. Their six eyes are sharp and stoic, flitting constantly between the agents, clamoring for their attention. This person is one of many information brokers, let's say, at the Syndicate, and right now their services are very much in popular demand. Four of their six eyes fix on an alcoholic beverage that a woman lifts enticingly into the air and they nod in her direction. In this Syndicate dining hall, the latest gossip on the 40th ranked strike team has just been sold to the highest bidder. We push now, out of the canteen, out of the bustling halls of trans, out of the training arenas, the research labs, the farmlands, the houses, the homes, the rec centers, the meditation chambers, workshops, offices, meeting rooms, armories, to find the prime oracle chamber. Rather, we find the hallway just outside the prime oracle chamber. It is a wide, rounded corridor with a long viewing bay attached to the eastern wall, east being relative, of course. This bay currently displays a sweeping vista of cosmic dust, with purples and greens and blues winking against a brilliant pink sun. At the end of this hallway, we see the doors to the Prime Oracle Chamber. These doors are circular, they are carved from bone-white marble, and they are sealed with a power beyond mortal understanding. There's no bench in this hallway. There's no seating area. There's no coffee table with magazines or hollow pads. There are only the walls, the floor, the window, and the closed circular doors. It is in this bare hallway that we find the surviving members of Strike Team Nova. Sir, you arrive first. How do you react when you round the corner to find an empty corridor? Sayer's heart sinks for a moment. He was hoping to either get a glance of his strike team or a glimpse of her. The creator, parent, mother. One who had made us, made us both. But once again, he is alone in an empty room. 
in an empty space, made to dawdle with his little thumbs stuffed into his pockets. He's currently wearing his trans uniform and he paces a little bit, tapping the back of his heel in anxiety, in nervousness. This is unprecedented. Sayer, the closest Sayer had gotten to fate was when Singh got her destiny. And now it's he that shares the room with her again. And Sayer just paces and mutters in a voice not his own under his breath. Everyone, it's good to see you. Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you. Hi, everybody. It is nice to see you. Fate. Hello. My name is Sayer. My name is Sayer. Sayer, you can see your own reflection in this window that reveals a small sliver into the grand cosmos beyond anyone's design. You see your own lips moving, saying these words like an incantation. You see your sister's makeup on your face. What else do you see of yourself as you gaze at your own unrecognizable reflection? He sees the mask that he has put on, the bravado, the beautiful makeup upon his face. He sees her, he sees him, he sees them together, two halves of one whole, two moons, twins, together forever to walk this journey. I'm sorry, she's not here right now. And as soon as that realization happens, he feels a stirring from within his chest. And his eyes get pulled to the blues. There's a, a flash of something. Indignation, maybe. A refusal of the call. And he brushes it aside and he says, Not now. Best face forward. For her. I must. I failed her enough already. You say this out loud? Yep. Zionin, as you come around the corner, you hear it. Sayer, glancing at his own reflection in the viewing bay, muttering those words to himself. Zainan turns the corner. He's been walking lighter since he's been physical. And he, two turns ago, had removed his customary hat, concerned that he was going to enter the chamber wearing it. And he's never been down this part of trans. And so he turns the corner holding his hat and hears this and stops short and then purposefully steps harder so that Sayer can hear the footfalls coming. And Sayer whirls around and looks at you, Zain, and his eyes widen for a moment in surprise, not cold or indifferent, not shock, just surprised to see you. But there's a warmth still. Zainan at first does not look Seer in the eye. His green eyes looking out the window. It's about the beauty of the cosmos outside and not at all because he is entirely trying to hide from any direct scrutiny that might be cast his direction. Uh, Seer, good, uh, good to see you. And the memory comes back into the back of Seer's mind. Him alone on that godforsaken podium, him alone holding that goddamned scissors and her beautiful statue unveiled on her day. And Sayer feels the 
mask falling a little bit and he holds it up. He must hold it up. It is his duty to him, to Trance, and to her memory. Sinan! Sinan, it's good to see you. You're doing okay. You seem to be doing okay. I was worried about you um, and how you were doing. You hear Lumira's footsteps before you are able to finish. Strong, sharp, intent. Not speeding up like she's running, not slow as she's taking her time, but quick and intent. Weirdly enough, she is not just on time. She is early. Lumira. Sinan straightens up hearing her footsteps. Agent Sinan, Agent Sayer. Lumira. Sumira, you're... She cuts her eyes at the both of you. It's... It's good to see you. The mask falters a little bit. Good to see you as well. I just... It's nice to see the both of you. Here. Again. Together. All of us. Here. Together. Right. And Lumira goes and sits down in an empty seat. Decidedly separate from the two of you. Rather, Lumira, do you lean against a wall? Because there are no benches in this hallway. Mm. This place has not been designed for people to wait outside. Yeah, I'll be leaning up against the wall then. Zainan walks not directly up to either of them, but towards the large marble doors. He is in two moments at once. He is both reuniting with these people that... It was yesterday that he failed them? Or was it a year ago? A lifetime ago? Or just two months? It's all kind of still soup. (laughs) And he steps towards the door because he is also in awe that he is standing here and he doesn't want to forget this moment. And he walks up to the door. What do you, uh, what do you think this is about? I was just wondering the exact same thing. I was going to ask you both. Uh, I I have no idea. This is... She's never met anyone before. I mean... The last time we saw her was... Well, we all know the last time we saw her. Um, it's not obvious. We are the team that lost her chosen. Zynan hangs his head. Sayer casts his eye away. What else would she want to talk to us about? Hmm? Could be about, um, the circumstance. It could be... And Zynan can't help but think about seeing the beautiful vision of Oblivion gently holding her. Could be anything. I think Lumira's right. She probably wants to hear it from our own lips. It makes a lot of sense and Asir nods in Lumira's direction. It makes a lot of sense. And Lumira licks her lips for a second before she speaks. Her voice is hollow. Her eyes just as hollow. The same, almost like a night sky without any stars. Well, I guess we shall see. I, for one, am not looking forward to it. 
Fate is nothing but intentional. And those words drip from her lips almost as if they were bitter. So bitter. I'm gonna trust in her will. He says strangled, forcing the words out, forgetting what he can't get out of his head. Trust in her will. Whatever she wishes to say to us, strike Team Nova. We'll face it together. All of us. Side by side. Exactly. All of us. Lumira says nothing. And that's when the marble doors open. And stepping out of a space that is so dark you can't see anything beyond the figure leaving it is Artemis, the patron saint of mortals. She almost doesn't seem to expect that you're there. Like it's a surprise when her golden eyes flick up to see one, two, three, all of you there. And then clarity registers again. Nova. Right. Good, you're all here. Trust in her will. And she stays not a moment longer. She hoofs down the hallway as though something was chasing her out of the dark room that just opened up. As though she could not bear to be in your presence any longer. She makes her way down the hallway without another word and rounds it and disappears. Lumira takes that on the chin. Deservedly, maybe, but nothing stings as worse as this does right now, so Artemis could look at her or not. Sinon's been at her side this whole time. She doesn't need to acknowledge him. Everything's fine. We're all back together. Zynan looks into the doorway, ahead to fate. There looks after Artemis's back, their strong presence leaving him. He was hoping to look at them a little longer, maybe search for a confirmation that everything's okay, that that we're okay after what happened the other day. But all he sees is that he has faltered in their eyes and he awaits in fear of what is to come ahead behind that door. Strike Team Nova. What's left of you enters the chamber. It is a vast, dark space. It is contained, but it has no walls. It supports your feet, but it has no floors. And at the very end of it, and being relative, of course, you see the prime oracle itself. It is a sun. It is a seed. It is a perfect circle of time. It is a wheel within a wheel. It is a machine. It is an organic life form. It is the place where nightmares go to become dreams. It is where you and your sister were made, spun from the red thread of the journey, hands clasped in unison to even fate's surprise, not just one, but two. It is a kaleidoscope of infinite sounds. It is divinity so grand it becomes heresy. It is the size of a black hole. It is 800 feet tall. It can fit in the palm of your hand. It is bigger than imagination. It is a color that doesn't exist yet. It is a clock counting down the minutes. It is an orange. It is a halo. It is... Welcome in. Fate stands in front of the Prime Oracle. Her back is turned towards your party. Her hands are folded in front of her hips, and her skin is the color of gold. Her hair is dark, short, so violently short. They exude a presence so dense, 
that it becomes impossible to breathe. But you don't need to breathe in here. Standing next to fate is magic. His hair is long and fragrant and bleeds into his robes, which are every color imaginable, just like his eyes. Magic is not facing the Oracle. Magic is facing the three of you. And for the very first time since any of you can remember, magic is making an expression. An actual expression on their face, not just breathless neutral gorgeousness. They're frowning. Just a little. Just a smidge. A dark blemish across the violent beauty of his face. Her back still turned to the three of you. Fate speaks again. I summoned you as an act of hope. I know all must seem empty and bleak, but you must persist. You must be brave. And so, and on that, fate turns around. And all of you see that her face is round and shining and bright and her eyes are just like Sing's. Pink, radiant, divine, furious with life. It is my hope that the strike team my chosen left behind will be able to- Ah! Um, you? <laughs> You're still here. Um, and fate is looking at Sayer. That you, with her, when she, well, you survived. That's good. That's great. Right. Um, as I was saying, it is my hope that the three of you will be able to overcome this tragedy and honor my chosen's legacy in the way she would have wanted with courage, with grace. And fate smiles. And she is looking at, no, looking through all of you at once. And for a sustained stretch of time, they do not continue speaking. And it slowly dawns on your party that she's waiting for a response from you. It would be my honor, genuinely. Good, very good. Wonderful. Lemira bows deeply. Oh, how kind of you. And she cuts her eyes to Sinan and Sayer, looking expectantly at the both of them. Sinan has actually been struggling with even how to feel. He's been a tool of fate for all of his current existence and to actually stand here he thought that the presentation around the Mayday protocols was overwhelming this is so overwhelming he feels like he's going to fall through the floor that isn't there he's had his head bowed for the most part just out of habit but when she when everything asks him for hope he bitterly thinks and cannot keep it off of his lips. I'm here. Uh, 
I'm here for your will. Whatever you need. Fate is looking right through you, Zynan, with that smile on her face. And you get the distinct feeling that she, as everything, she looks at you and she sees everything. And still the smile stays on her face. Good. Very good. How kind of you. I trust in your will. Oh. Oh, yes. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your trust. And then her eyes slide over to Sayer. Sayer's eyes are widened from that reaction from her, from his creator, from his parents. And as soon as reality finally pulls him back from that fabulous shock, mostly from Lumira's sharp gaze at him, Sayer comes back to his body and he says, Yes, ma. Fate, in your will, I will trust, and in your will, I will enact. Fate smiles at you, Sayer. Despite your faltering speech, despite the word that almost tumbled out of your lips, she smiles at you, and the smile doesn't falter even when you do. And she looks at you, and she says, Were you at the funeral? Yes. I held the scissors that unveiled her statue on her day. Oh, yes, 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 you were. You did. Yes, good, good. Thank you. A very important job. Someone had to do it. Thank you for doing it. It's only my duty. Hmm. Good, very good. Hmm. Magic clears his throat. It's the first noise any of you have ever heard him make. He clears his throat. And Fate's eyes snap briefly at him, and then back at your party. Right, so keep your chins up, up, toward the sky, toward the heavens, one might say. And whenever the three, yes, the three of you are ready to return to missions, then you shall. So it has been said, so it is, so it shall. You know, um, if I may be candid, I know right now can't be a very easy time for the three of you. And though I am, well, everything, and I feel everything, Each loss matters in its own unique way. And my chosen's loss, well, I hope that her life will inspire and her death will remind. Remind us all that we were brought to this moment, well, because of oblivion, But because of the Mayday Protocol, and because it is my sacred duty and my greatest joy to usher worlds to become the best versions of themselves that they can be, that includes extending that hope and that grace to oblivion. Though 
it was the one that took my chosen. And a sadness passes over Fate's eyes, a great, big, deep, true sadness. Sing's eyes blinking out at all of you, so somberly, as Fate says. Yes, though it was Oblivion that took her. Well, and Sing's eyes blink again, puts on a smile, bravely, courageously, with hope, with grace. Can the three of you do that for me? Yes. It shall be done. Yes, of course. Zainan is barely containing a yell, but he does trust. He does mean it. Lumira tastes copper, metallic. She's biting the inside of her lips so hard she can taste it. She nods, although her outer mask is unwavering, focused, and intent. Sayer looks at Singh's eyes, made real in this moment, and all that he can think of is the way she says, Oblivion. Yes, it was Oblivion that took her. Yes, it was Oblivion that took her. He thinks over and over to himself, something bubbling deep within his stomach. He quashes it, but it's there nonetheless. Very well. Very good. Very good. Well, and magic speaks. Zainan, Lumira, Sayer, I just wanted to say, and their voice, his voice is every color at once, every sound. It sounds like a song. It looks like a prayer. And then fate speaks, cutting in. I have a great feeling, Strike Team Nova, that the Prime Oracle just might assign your next mission in eight days. So keep an eye out for your Oracle. Of course. Yes, fate. Good. Very good. And magic cuts in again, sideways, glancing over at fate and then glancing at your party. And he says, I just wanted to say. And fate claps. And both of them are gone. And in this prime oracle chamber, with the oracle itself glowing like a sun, like a black star, like a collapsed wound, the great marble doors behind you open once more. And in comes the Huntress. (sighs) Artemis looks just as frantic as she did walking out of the prime oracle chamber, almost as though she were pacing outside of it. She comes in, sees all of you, one, two, three, her golden, forgotten, someone else's eyes registering each of you. Good. Come on out. Yes, sir. Quickly, it might irradiate you, please. So your marches. Lumira is shocked. <laughs> but marches. Zainan walks quickly, and before we even leave the Prime Oracle Chamber, that reverence falls off of him, and he puts his hat back on. Artemis stands at the door watching each of you go out and through, almost making sure that every single atom of you leaves this chamber before she follows after. Let's the doors slide shut behind. And then seems to take a breath. And it's so loud that 
you notice because she actually doesn't breathe that much. They don't actually breathe that much when you're talking to them. But this, this breath spills out of their lungs easily, quickly. What did she say? We have a mission coming in probably eight days. Sayer puts his face back on. She said that we must inspire. That we must hope and move forward together. That's what she said. He can't hide it from her, not her of all people. That pain in his eye as if a stake had been driven into his heart and left there bleeding. But the face stays on. She registers it, looks at your face for a heartbeat longer before their eyes flick over to Lumira. Lumira's eyes are wide and frantic, her hands balled in fists to the side, but she's trying to shake them out and rub her sweaty palms along the side of her robes. But she says nothing, but looks up at you with wide, pleading eyes. She um also reminded us who took Sing from us. Oblivion. Yes. Good. Good. And Artemis meets your eye contact, Lumira. Register it. You can see her registering it, acknowledging it, saying yes. Offering the appropriate time and place. Coming back. Acknowledging this. Oblivion. And at the word, her brow furrows just a tiny bit. Yes. Yes, then. In that case, you will see me in eight days for your next mission. Are you all ready? Whenever I'm needed. Yes. Yes. He says, exclaims almost desperately, with a strained positivity and a smile not his own. Yes. And her eyes linger on Lumira for just a moment longer as she says, Good. Hope is a double-edged blade. Wield it with care. You're dismissed. Lumira turns on her heel and is the first one out. Zainan has waited for Singh to walk next to him every time we've walked away from a meeting, from every palace, every skyship, and he stands there for a moment and almost feels like he can see the white hair and he looks just past his shoulder. It wasn't white hair, it was just a bit of light reflecting off of Sears' trans uniform. And he walks forward. Sayer's eyes linger at the backs of his strike team as they march off, not without another word. And he looks back to the hands, the patron saint of mortals, the great huntress for a moment. It looks like he's about to open his mouth to say something. Thinks better of it. And nods one more time and walks away. And as Strike Team Nova disperses from their faded summons, leaving Artemis, the patron saint of mortals, alone in this corridor outside the Prime Oracle Chamber, Artemis what final expression falls over your face as the last of your mentees leaves your sight? 
responsibility. The heaviest, most horrible responsibility anyone has ever held in the history of the journey. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to... Stardiers, Jordan, Derek Davidson, Phil, Mark J, Astrid, Spencer, Lyle and Peanut, Rose, Alex, The Bow System, Cassidy, Lex, Charles, Cora Eckert, and Scruffesis. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!